All right, well, tonight I would like to um, get all the way through chapter 47, 48, which will, for the most part, conclude this, this large major section uh, that we've been going through. And um, so it's, it's a lot of reading, but I know you guys like to be read to. So why don't you remain seated, and I'll read the text. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we're going to go through it very quickly, and I'll just more like hit some of the highlights. Because there's, as we've come this far in the book of Isaiah, there's actually uh, quite a bit of redundancy in what we've talked about. So I think you'll, you'll get it. Are you ready? All right. So as the traditional saying goes, hear the word of the Lord. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil, take off the skirt, uncover the thigh, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance and I will not arbitrate with a man. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called the Lady of Kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly, you laid your yoke very heavily. And you said, I shall be a lady forever, so that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. Therefore, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries for the great abundance of your enchantments. For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one else beside me. Therefore, evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises and trouble shall fall upon you. You will not be able to put it off and desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. Stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. Behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. Thus shall they be to you, with whom you have labored, your merchants from your youth. They shall wander each one to his quarter. No one shall save you. Chapter 48. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts is his name. I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them and they came to pass. 
because I knew that you were obstinate and your neck was an iron sinew and your brow bronze, even from the beginning I have declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you, lest you should say, my idol has done them and my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. You have heard, see all this, and will you not declare it? I have made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. They are created now and not from the beginning, and before this day you have not heard them, lest you should say, of course I knew them. Surely you did not hear. Surely you did not know. Surely from long ago your ear was not opened, for I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. For my name's sake, I will defer my anger, and my praise, I will restrain it from you, so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And will I not give my glory? And I will not give my glory to another. Listen to me, O Jacob, and to Israel my called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. All of you assemble yourselves and hear. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him, uh, I have brought him, and his way will prosper. Come near to me. Hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and his Spirit have sent me. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants also would have been like the sand and the offspring of your body like the grains of sand. His name would not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. Go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing, declare, proclaim this, utter it to the end of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock and waters gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Let's pray. Well, Father, again, the, the text is about judgment and it's about redemption. It, the story of your justice, the story of man's treachery and sin, and idolatry and unfaithfulness. Lord, I pray that you would just reveal yourself more to us in regard to your just nature, that you are holy, that you've called us to be holy as you are. And um, yeah, so just teach us, encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. That was a lot of reading. But Paul does say to Timothy to uh, give yourself to reading. And uh, it, it is uh, understood that it, it means public reading, the public reading of the word. But we do that every Sunday and Thursday. And then, of course, you do it all week, right? All right. Well, let's, let's get into, uh, which is supposed to be chapter 47. I'll fix that later, and then it won't matter. 
So what is, what is pronounced in chapter 47 has to do, of course, with the judgment of the Babylonians. Chapter 48 has to do with Israel. And the judgment of the Babylonians, of course, as we've talked about many times, took place on the night that Cyrus and his armies breached the wall of Babylon, not by tearing it down, not by going over the top, but going underneath, right? They diverted the Euphrates River, dried out the riverbed, marched under the city, and Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, was partying because they believed with extreme presumption that nobody could take the city of Babylon, of course. And uh, that night, they took the city, uh, the Persians, without a fight. And um, it's quite amazing. God's judgment of Babylon, uh, as the chapter reveals, was by the instrumentation of Cyrus. And uh, it's been a prophetic point uh, for multiple chapters. Now you remember in 44, God even named Cyrus by name uh, well over 100 years before Cyrus is even born. And uh, just to demonstrate that he is God and that he's in control of history. And it's the, it's the indictments against Babylon, at least one of them, uh, and the consequences for it that I want to talk about tonight. But there, there's, there's many charges that God brings against them. The one in verse 6 is cruelty, okay, instead of mercy. And then arrogance and presumption, verse 7. Pride, verse 8 and 10. Sorcery and enchantments, uh, essentially horoscope, verse 9, and then also trusting in wickedness, verse 10. Those are the charges against Babylon. And then the judgments are humiliation. You remember at the beginning that God says he would expose their shame. They'll no longer be the, you know, the, the, the princesses, the daughter of, of Babylon, but instead they'll find themselves grinding at the, uh, the, the grinding stone, uh, work of a slave. So he will reduce them, humiliate them. And then eventually uh, it'll be death, he says, evil, trouble, and desolations, verse 9 through 15. Uh, the latter prophets, prophets say that um, when God is done with Babylon, uh, it will essentially be uh, a home of jekylls. He will just totally destroy them. And have you, has anybody in here been to Iraq? Oh, well... Uh, I can't find my pictures anymore. I wasn't there, but my brother was a Black Hawk pilot and did two tours in Iraq, and he flew over uh, many of the original sites of the, the Babylonian Empire. And uh, you know what they look like today? Rubble. Yeah, rubble. So God has definitely judged. And in the text, he elevates his identity, the Redeemer of Israel, the Lord of hosts, uh, the Holy One. That's verse 4. Okay, so as I, I don't want to dissect the whole chapter verse by verse. Um, as I said, it's pretty redundant. It's, it's uh, a retelling, a prophetic retelling of what God intends to do to Babylon because of their sin. Um, but I'd like to look at a theological issue. Uh, it's mentioned in many places in Scripture, but I think it's especially interesting here in verse 6. Uh, God says, I was angry with my people... I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly, you laid your yoke very heavily. So the the passage reveals that God used the Babylonians to judge his people. He, He gave his people into their hands, he says. So they were the instruments of God's judgment. 
right? Just as Cyrus will later be the instruments of God's judgment on Babylon. And mind you, when God judged Judah and Jerusalem, it was deserving, okay? It was deserving. They sinned wickedly against him. They violated the covenant. Uh, they, were, they were literally sacrificing their babies to Molech, okay? Alive in the burning arms of Molech. Uh, much, a lot of idolatry. And so their judgment was just. But Babylon, as the instrument of God's judgment, didn't simply conquer Judea, okay, and then deport the Jews to Babylon and have them in captivity. God says, you showed them no mercy and you were cruel to them. You were cruel to the elderly. So Babylon, this grossly pagan people, they went too far in the execution of God's judgment. They they went beyond what they knew to be appropriate, okay? They went beyond what is just. There was a line that they crossed, which they should not have, a line that they knew was there. Now, the same accusation was brought against Assyria in chapter 10, verses 5 through 6 uh, in, in Isaiah. And for that, both for us, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they were given justice by God for their injustice. So God ends up punishing the punisher because the punisher went way too far. Okay, God, and listen carefully, God expected these pagan people, grossly pagan, okay, to perform his judgment in a just way and in a humane manner. And then when they failed, he held them accountable for it. He he basically annihilated them as a people. How many of you guys know a Babylonian? How many of you guys know a Ninevite? You don't, do you? Okay. Uh, so God dealt extremely harsh with them. Okay. Reasonable expectations that they did not meet. Here's the issue that arises out of this. And I'm not accusing anybody in this room of doing this, okay? even though I've heard you say it. When the unbelieving world behaves immorally, or just badly, we often give them a pass by saying things like, well, what did you expect? The world is just behaving like the world. We should expect sinners to sin. After all, the unbelieving world is unsaved, and therefore we shouldn't expect any virtue from them. They are sinners, and we should expect nothing less. How many of you guys have heard uh, Christians make statements like that? How does it sound in light of what we just talked about? Is it good theology? I don't think it is. If, if that is true, that saying, why at other times do we cry, you know, cry for justice when they commit evil? If the world is just being the world, why would we hold them accountable for doing what they can't help, what they should just be expected to do? Why do we get frustrated when they behave so badly toward us? Okay, after all, the world is just behaving like the world. Sinners just do sinful things. And if that is just what the world does, because that's what the world is, sinners that sin, how do we justly condemn their behavior and give them appropriate consequences? Because there's a big problem with this. If someone doesn't know what sin is, or they can't help it when they sin, how can we or God justly condemn them? We may not like their behavior, as when a dog marks its territory, but we can't we can't condemn it on moral grounds. That is, if in fact they do not know right from wrong or they can't help doing what is wrong. If that were the case, they would fit into what we call a, an A 
moral category. You know, A meaning without, okay? It's be the same as animals. They're not moral. They're not immoral. They're completely amoral. And if we reduce human beings to that same level, we can't judge them on moral grounds. To put a spin on this, what do we say when the unbelieving world consistently behaves morally, exercising justice and mercy and love, which they do quite often? Do we say they got lucky? It was by accident during the 50 years of their life? You see what I'm saying? Or perhaps there's something amiss in our understanding of unbelieving, unregenerate man. And I think there is with a lot of people. There's, I mean, that problem would never exist in Calvary Chapel. You see, God, who is always just, and he can't do otherwise, he had moral expectations of the Assyrians and Babylonians who were deeply depraved. And when they violated those expectations, he held them accountable for it. He judged them extremely harshly. He held them accountable because they could be rightly condemned for doing evil rather than for doing good. You see, all men, whether they're saved or not, are moral creatures because they're created in the image of God, who is a moral being. Genesis 1.26, Genesis 9.6, James chapter 3, verse 9. And although the image of God has been effaced by sin, it has not been erased. You understand? The image of God in us has been damaged by sin, but it hasn't been eradicated by it. It's still there. It's still functioning. We're still accountable to it. Even the believer's moral nature, as it's been marred by sin, still remains. We still sin. We are redeemed, but we're not perfect. The unsaved are not redeemed, but neither are they completely imperfect. They're not as depraved as they could be. I mean, imagine if somebody was depraved as they possibly could be. What kind of a human being would they be? They'd be dangerous. They'd be dangerous. The difference is that the believer is, has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit who has, Scripture says, made us alive to God so that our works now are unto God and they're for his glory. The unbeliever is unregenerate. He's, he's separated from the life of God and their works are dead, unrecognized by God, and all of their deeds are done for themselves, ultimately, right? They're still capable of good, even expected by God to do good, and he will judge them for not. And he will do it justly. But he does not reward them eternally for the good they do. The good that they do is expected of them because of the image that they've been created in. Yeah. This understanding of man comes from Romans chapter 2, verse 14, primarily. Paul says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. So Gentiles are the pagan peoples living outside of Israel in Paul's day. They did not have the moral law of God in written form as it was recorded in in the book of Exodus. You know, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. Those are at least the the first primary moral uh, commandments in the law of God. But even though they did not have the scriptures they still abided by the basic moral tenets of the law. And they still do the basic moral tenets. How many guys have read uh, Mere Christianity from C.S. Lewis? Some of it, yeah. Yeah, how many guys have read Kokel's book, Greg Kokel, uh, 
moral relativism, feet firmly planted in midair. You've read it? Yeah. Great arguments from those guys that there are moral absolutes, objective morality, universally so in our world. So man not only knows what is right and what is wrong, they most often do what is right and avoid what is wrong, and they do this because they know better. That's not the only reason they do it. I mean, there's social reasons for avoiding bad things. There's legal reasons for avoiding bad things. But they know, okay? They know better. How do they know? It says, who? Gentiles show the work of the law written in their hearts and their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. And that's not just true of the unregenerate Gentile, that's true of me and you as well. Okay, we still have all of this in us, but we have, in addition to that, we have the word of God. Amen? Okay. So the basic tenets of morality, as they're described in the moral law of God, are etched into the hearts of all men. And therefore, by nature, all men behave basically to what is written in the law. Now imagine if people in general, did not. Imagine what it would be like, what kind of a world would we live in if no unbeliever held to any of the basic principles of morality. Imagine what society would be like. Imagine what home life would be like. It would be absolute, I mean, chaos would reign, would it not? It would, yeah. But unregenerate people do live by the basic moral tenets of the law. And then when they do what is right, their conscience affirms it. You did what was right. And when they do what was wrong, their conscience convicts them. It condemns them. You did what was wrong, right? Correct? Okay. All men know that they should do good and that they should avoid evil, and their conscience bears witness to their actions, whether good or bad. Does. Okay. Now, the knowledge of right and wrong never goes away. It never goes away. It's in their nature to know. But the conscience that affirms good and condemns evil can be damaged to where it no longer speaks to us. Okay? There's a diagnosis for those people. I think the old diagnosis is antisocial personality disorder. Uh, it's social path. Paul says it this way, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Does anybody here, and you don't have to raise your hand unless you're brave enough, does anybody here have a branding? No brandings? I served with a bunch of um, uh, guys in the army, some black guys that were a part of some uh, like fraternal orders, and they had brandings on their arms and their back, and very strange. And my understanding is it's extremely painful, but once it's over, there's no feeling. There's no feeling. Just as, you know... Branding the skin, it, it kills all of the nerve endings so that nothing is felt. The conscience can be violated over and over and over again to the point where it no longer feels uh, the guilt associated with sin. And when that happens, that person becomes, uh, they're, they're in a dangerous condition, uh, both for themselves and for anybody around them. They're bad people, okay? Committing acts of evil does not bother them. Now, they know it is evil, but they no longer care, so they're driven by unrestrained lust. But because they continue to know that their deeds are evil, God 
can still justly punish them for doing what they know is right and what they know is, is wrong. So this takes us back to our conversation about sinners being sinful and we should expect nothing less, even though God expects more. I've heard the sentiment applied when an unbelieving relative or friend behaves badly around someone's children. They're sinners. They're unbelievers. They're unregenerate. So, I mean, what do we expect, they say, okay? Well, that's true. They're sinners, but you can expect them to use appropriate language, exercise appropriate humor, and avoid certain subjects when they're in your home or around your children, right? Your children's sanctity and your duty to preserve it supersede your concern of offending the unbeliever by setting a moral standard, all of which they know they're doing the wrong thing anyway. Okay, so yes, you can expect them of the same things that God expects of them, okay? And if they won't abide by your demands, you have the right, you have the duty to exclude them from certain contexts, okay? Now, of course, we can't hold the unbeliever to what is strictly Christian because they're not subject to the covenant of Christ, right? They're not actually in the covenant. Like, I would never hold an unbeliever accountable for not worshiping Christ. That's something Christ will hold them accountable to, okay? We don't do inquisitions, right? I would never hold them accountable for not giving to missions or to the ministry. But I do expect them to live according to what God has written on their hearts. I I hope that they experience consequences when they don't, okay? Whether those consequences be you know, um, internal or even social, even occupational or legal. I got to admit, when certain people get fired for certain behaviors, I'm pretty glad. When people go to prison for some behaviors, aren't you glad? I mean, you don't want them around your children, right? You don't want them in society. So those are good things. I think there should be social consequences for bad behavior. They should be excluded until the behavior changes changes. Okay. So I think we have to be careful saying that sinners are sinners and we should expect nothing less. Okay. I think it's dangerous. It's because they're created in the image of God. They know right from wrong. You guys, it puts their soul in jeopardy. It's what necessitates the preaching of the gospel and it justifies the righteous judgment of God. God expects a very particular moral standard from even unbelievers, and he justly holds them accountable to it. Scriptures say that the wrath of God is currently being revealed. It's currently being poured out on the ungodly because of what they know but refuse to do. That's all of Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. You know, and I look at, you know, so many of the problems in our nation today, you know, the vast majority of those in the drug community, they're under the wrath of God. They're suffering his wrath. He's given them over to that, as Romans 1 says. I believe the greater population of the homeless have been given over. Those in sexual moral uh, lifestyles, the idolater, uh, they're given over to, to, to those things, and it's God's wrath. Now, he's using that to hopefully wake them up so that they will look at the goodness of God and repent, as Paul begins in Romans 2. So Romans 1.18 says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then he goes on to say that this is happening because they know God has revealed it to them and yet they continue to, to behave in these sinful and rebellious ways. Now, 
The problem is, is that I think many in some Christian circles think that we should just leave them then to the wrath of God. I don't think that that's Christian. Uh, God sent Christ into the world to redeem the world. So we don't stand by passively and just watch the world die. That would squander Christ's sacrifice. But in order for them to experience redemption, they must hear the gospel. And if they're going to hear the gospel, it must be preached to them. And if it's going to be preached to them, a preacher must be sent. Does that sound like a verse somewhere in the Bible? Chapter 10 of Romans? Yeah. So if we remain passive in regard to the condition of the wicked, Christianity would just be a dying breed. But this is how we perpetuate. This is how we fulfill the Great Commission. We go to where they are and we preach the gospel. Amen? All right, let's see if we can get chapter 48 in there. So as we said, chapter 47 was the issue of judging Babylon. Here is the problem of Israel. And as we read it, you see God bringing an indictment against them, but that it it ends with his promise to redeem them out of his judgment from Babylon. Now it begins with uh, those that are called of God uh, who have come from Jacob. That's this chosen line of people. They swear by the name of the Lord. They speak his name, but he accuses them of doing this not in truth or in righteousness, verse 1 and 2. They identify with the God of Jacob. That's Yahweh. They uh, celebrate in the fact that they're a part of the capital city of Jerusalem. They're in the community of faith, the covenant community. They supposedly trust in the Lord, but he says it's all a farce. It's all a farce. It's amazing how nothing has changed (laughs) from so many people, uh, from Israel to the church. So many people are all lip service But as James would say, they're hearers of the word only and not doers. And he says they've deceived themselves. They think they're fine. They think everything's okay. So again, God returns to the one piece of evidence that uh, proves his deity, uh, simply to condemn Israel's idolatry. Now, he brought it up uh, at the very beginning of this large section that there's this one test uh, by which... an uh, any, when there's any claim to deity, uh, there's one way to demonstrate it, and it's, God says it's, it's prophetic, infallible foreknowledge, right? And uh, he's constantly throughout the section taunting the, the Israelites who have become idolaters. He's taunting them to inquire of their idols to tell them of things to come. He says, if, if you can just get them to speak, I'll be happy. Okay, if you can get them to move, I'll be happy. And then, um, then he taunts the idols themselves, that if you can speak, respond to me. If you can do anything at all, do something. And he's being very sarcastic with the idols. And then God uh, begins to talk about the future. And then it's in chapter 44, we're not just telling about the future of Israel and what will happen in Babylon and what will happen to Babylon. He actually names Cyrus, the king of Persia, who will come and conquer Babylon, but also he will sign a decree that will then release Israel. So he's bringing this whole thing up again uh, to, 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 to confront them and uh, his, his, just his infallible foreknowledge. But then, uh, as we mentioned earlier in the section, 
he, he actually comes out and just states it here, that God mingles his foreknowledge with his sovereignty, that is his control uh, over history. God doesn't just know in advance, he also brings it to pass. In verse three, God just comes out and says it. He says, I've declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them and they came to pass. See, there's a difference if you have passive infallible foreknowledge, just, just knowing what will happen in the future before it comes. That would be one thing. Okay, that's actually what a prophet receives through divine revelation. He knows what's going to happen in the future, but that comes from the Lord. But now God is saying, uh, it's not passive foreknowledge. I execute what I want. Okay, so I, I tell my prophets what will be done, and then I'm the one that does it. I have sovereign control over history. How many of you guys like that? Okay. Aren't you glad that the White House is not in sovereign control of history? Okay or any foreign government or whatever. So I love the sovereignty of God. So God performs it. He's, he's orchestrating all of history to his intended end. It's great stuff. So God, um, he's, he basically says in this section here that I, I communicated to Israel in this way so that they could not say their idols did it. I pronounced all these things in the past before Israel abandoned me for their idols. So they couldn't say, well, I mean, it was our idols that did that. No, God said, I mentioned those things in Deuteronomy prior to this, this, you know, this betrayal, this mass betrayal to idolatry, which happened later in Israel's history. And then he performed things in their day that he didn't mention as something new. So they could not say that they knew it was coming. He does both things. He says, they are created now and not from the beginning. And before this day, you have not heard them, lest you should say, of course I knew them. Surely you did not hear. Surely you did not know. Surely from long ago, your ear was not opened. For I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. Now, he's not saying that the, the Jews individually were called transgressors the day that they were born as people. He's saying, from the very uh, inception of the nation of Israel, when I made you a nation, he says, you guys went astray. We have the history of that, right? All of the wilderness wanderings, that was when he made them a nation, and they immediately went morally crazy. Just a sad, sad story. But that's the story of Scripture, that God is the hero, man is the redeemed villain. Amen. They could not say that they saw it coming. Their idols, uh, he taunts them, could not predict nor protect. And he says, I organized all of this stuff this way so that you couldn't turn to that. He says, before it happened, I knew you would deal treacherously by straying to idols and you've just been a rebellious people from the beginning. So um, what is common as we've seen through this major section is there's condemnation of Israel there's charges brought against them, and then there's God's promise to redeem them. So Isaiah is very good with not leaving them with judgment and then going silent. Uh, he always reassures them in the process of, of judgment. So God says that, he says that for his name's sake, he will defer his anger from them, but he says, but like silver, he will refine them through suffering. That sounds pleasant. He says, I won't allow you to just profane 
my name through idolatry without consequences, okay? He would not allow them to share his glory with idols, but he would judge them and then he would deliver them. So it's going to be discipline before it's redemption. It's going to be judgment before reconciliation. And he will secure at least a few generations of repentance. Now, the question is, I think that he's addressing from here on out, is how would he actually deliver Israel from destruction in Babylon? You see, the the Babylonian empire was so massive, it was so powerful, and it was so overwhelming that it would just seem impossible for anyone to escape its grip. And the way that the ancient people thought, uh, most people, was that if, if your city or your state was conquered, it means that the God of the other nation was more powerful than yours. And see, that's the benefit of having Yahweh as your God because he says, no, I'm, I'm opening the doors for Babylon to judge you. It's not that I'm weaker than the gods of the Babylonians. I'm actually permitting them to do this. But in their minds, because they were a stiff-necked people, they were deaf as he accuses them of, they're not hearing this reality. So when they are conquered, they think that the gods of Babylon have bested the gods of Israel. So how can God redeem them from Babylon? Well, listen to what God says. He says, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first and the last. I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. Those are statements of cosmic sovereignty, yeah? Regardless of how powerful the Babylonian empire becomes, it will never be powerful enough to create the earth. It will never be powerful enough to stretch out the heavens and it will never have the power to command the stars. He says, when I speak to them, they all give me their attention. They basically stand up and say, yes, Lord. What is it that you want, Lord? Here I am, Lord, okay? Only the first and the last can do that, and therefore, he can also deliver Israel from all her troubles. And then in the mix of this, just as he calls the stars and they obey him, he will call Cyrus, and he will cause Cyrus to prosper in the destruction of Babylon. That's verse 12 through 14. So now at this point in the prophecy, there's this interesting turn. In verse 12, it's made plain that the, the person uh, speaking is the first and the last, right? Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called, I am the first, I am the last. The personal pronoun continues through this section right here into verse 16, and listen. Come near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning From the time that it was, I was there, and now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. That's interesting. There's no inconsistency in the Hebrew language or the grammar. I is still the person speaking earlier, okay? So the one speaking is the first and the last, who is distinguished from the Lord God and his spirit. This is the one, I, who is being sent. There are clearly three persons in the verse, the Lord God, the Spirit, and the one who is being sent. The Lord God is a divine person. The Spirit is a divine person, and the first and the last is a divine person. Who is the first and the last? Well, he's the one speaking in Revelation. I am the Alpha. 
I am the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Who's speaking? Jesus is speaking. So the person relaying the prophecy to John the Apostle in Revelation is the same person conveying the prophecy to Isaiah in chapter 48. Same person, okay? Don't you love that? Uh, People say, well, there's no Trinitarian verses in the Old Testament, if you say so. I've read some uh, scholarly um, debates on uh, the verse here, and uh, this one guy argues that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit never sends anyone. Really? Isaiah records prophecy, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has sent me. Who's that talking about? It's Jesus. That's right. That's right. So don't be intimidated by scholars. They're just, many of them are just unbelievers, which is true uh, for many of them. So anyway, uh, let's continue with Isaiah. He says, oh, that you had heeded my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants also, excuse me, would have been like the sand and the offspring. Goodness, that's the trouble with having a microphone. <laughs> Let me start over. Your descendants also would have been like the sand and the offspring of your body like the grains of sand. His name would not have been cut off nor destroyed before me. Yeah. The, the, the benefits of obedience, the, the consequences of rebellion. Of course, the, the promise of verse 19 was to Israel and not to those in the new covenant. But peace and righteousness are the fruit of those who walk with God. It doesn't matter what covenant that you belong to, right? And God says, oh, that you had heeded my commandments. If they had, Israel would have been spared the misery of defeat, the cruelty of their enemy, deportation for 70 years in captivity, but they just would not listen. He said, you had sinews of iron. Your neck was that stiff. Now, it's painful to observe people in disobedience, especially after they've received clear biblical instruction and they've been warned of the consequences. Israel, I mean, they have been warned ever since the book of Exodus, right? Here's the blessings of obedience. Here's the curses of disobedience. And then after the law was given, we went into the judges and then there was, there was deliverers that were given. We get into the kings and chronicles. Prophets were given, all speaking the same language of repent, or else. And then God reminding them of covenant blessing and promise. You know, in ministry, in friendships, I've I've said too many times, I tried to spare you. I tried to spare you. But as the proverb says, a way looks right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. What What they wanted to play with, what they wanted to involve themselves in, it looked right to them. It made them feel good, feel wanted. It gave them a sense of purpose, of belonging. But in the end, it led to pain, emotional turmoil, broken relationships, opportunities, and ultimately separation from God and his benefits, his benefits. I've had people that they just, it just seems like they never can just get out of the rut of rebellion, And then they complain that they're not experiencing any of the benefits of the covenant. And it doesn't matter what I say to them. They just cannot see that the benefits come by walking in step with Jesus. Walk in the light as he is in the light. 
It's like their ears are closed off and it, it's just so sad to see. Yeah. Too often, out of pride, lust, and self-will, people know better than those who counsel them. We've, we've counseled men about women and women about men only to be ignored. And then months or years later, we're invited back into the situation only to pick up the pieces. Or from a distance, we just have to sadly watch things fall apart. I don't know how many people over the years that have come back and said, you warned me, you told me, I remember you said this, or one of the elders said it, or one of the people that counsel them, I just didn't listen. We've done this with spouses, with children, we've done it with friends. But that sounds so dreary and dark. I would say the majority of people, they hear the word of God, they submit to its authority, and then by the grace of God, they begin to walk. I would say that's the majority. But the, the ones that just, you can't shake them out of it, and it's just, it's heartbreaking. So, oh, that they had heeded counsel from their peace would have been like a river and their righteousness like the waves of the sea, but they cursed themselves. Well, here in the prophecy, the Lord was promising future deliverance. He, he commands them in advance that when the decree from Cyrus is given, he says, go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing, declare, proclaim this, utter it to the ends of the earth, or the end of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant, Jacob. He's commanding them in advance to celebrate his redemption. Very sweet. And then referring to Israel coming out of the exodus from Egypt, he says, they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock and the waters gushed out. So just as Israel will had safe passage and their provisions met leaving Egypt, they're going to have something very similar when they leave Babylon. And then the prophecy ends. <laughs> there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And that is so because the Lord will ultimately see to it. Yeah. The joy and gladness of verse 20 belongs to those who trust in the Lord. God will ensure that the wicked eventually lose all hope and all of their security. He'll see to it that their joy be turned to sorrow. Amen? Now, too often, uh, the problem is that the wicked do not see themselves as wicked, which is exactly the kind of people that Isaiah is prophesying to. And it's exactly the kind of people that need the gospel today. Now, uh, we just finished with what the, the LGBTQ community uh, has you know, deemed the Pride Month. And, and this is all very interesting to me. Uh, with Pride, they celebrate sexual morality, and then they present a symbol that defies God. So pride is the sin of the devil, and the rainbow is a symbol of God's promise that he'll never destroy the earth again with water for man's rebellion. So with pride, they taunt God and they wave the rainbow in his face as if to say, what are you, what are you gonna do? You've, you've promised that you wouldn't do that. And so they celebrate in our streets, they sing in the parades, they dance in front of our children and their numbers as they increase make them feel justified. Well, just because God won't judge again by way of water does not preclude the fact that he will judge with fire the party will end when Christ returns with flaming fire, Paul says in Thessalonians, taking vengeance 
on the wicked. So ultimately, nothing changes what God has said here. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked because he will see to it. Peace is found only through faith in Christ and walking in step with him. Amen? Go ahead and stand up. Let's pray. If you have any questions about the theological matter from chapter 47, uh, come talk with me. Don't imagine I'll hear anybody use that phrase for a while. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you that you are just, that you can demand righteousness from whoever you want. And when you judge, it will be according to justice, just as Abraham clearly in Genesis 18 regarding the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, shall not the God of all the earth do right. And indeed, he always does. And so, Lord, we just pray that as your wrath is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness, we pray that we would be busy with the gospel, Lord, rescuing people from the final judgment. And we would not sit on our hands or just watch passively. And Lord, also, we just pray that we, as you've called us to holiness, would be holy as you are holy. And, uh, and Lord, that because of that, we would, we would get to reap the benefits of fellowship with you and the blessings of the covenant that we're in with you. So Lord, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.